Second Kings chapter 9. We ended the lesson last week with the question from Jehu, who is on my side? And it led us to consider the subject of being on God's side. And our study showed us that it was first important to be on the Lord's side. That's the first thing. If a man or a woman is on the Lord's side, then we are on their side if we're on the Lord's side. You see, if I'm on the Lord's side concerning, let's say, a particular doctrine in the Bible, and you're halfway across the world like Brother Wisdom and Candela and our brothers and sisters in Africa, and they're also on the Lord's side with that doctrine, well, I don't have to call or text Brother Candela and say, hey, can we be on the same side too? We already are. If he's on the Lord's side and I'm on the Lord's side about something, then we're already on the same side with each other. We don't have to make the argument uh, about doing so. However, if a man is not on the Lord's side, whether it's through unbelief or perhaps he's a believer but he's in disobedience or in error in a certain area, then we should not be on that man's side regardless. We can't say, well, you know old brother Andy's normally right about that or this, and even though I don't think he's right here, I'm going to be on his side anyway. Don't do that. I don't want you to. I don't want to be on the wrong side. And Jehu was on the Lord's side as he was on a specific mission to cut off the house of Ahab and to destroy Jezebel for their sins. And in our passage last week in verse 32 and the verses before, he stood outside a window and Based on the context of the passages that we'll read today, that window must have been way up. And you'll see why I think that in just a moment. And so he stood outside that window, probably looking up at it. And Jezebel, looking down with her painted face and her fixed up hair, as we read. And Jehu asked that question. He said, who is on my side? He totally ignored what it was Jezebel did to try to manipulate him. So let's continue studying verse 32 where we left off. If you're just joining us online, or if you're in here and you just now tuned in, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 32, and here's what Jehu did. And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And there looked out to him two or three eunuchs. So after Jehu asked this question, these two or three eunuchs looked out to him. They were about to show whose side they were on. And even though we don't read that they said anything here, their looking out to Jehu was a nonverbal way of showing they were on his side. And I'm confident these eunuchs had endured the wrath of Jezebel many times. And maybe they were secretly hoping for someone to put her in her place or take her out. And for them, in response to Jehu's question, who is on my side, who? 
the eunuch stepping forward, looking out to Jehu so he could see them, would be like me stepping forward if my supervisor were to ask among the group with whom I work, who will go and do a certain task? Who wants to go out and put the barricades up at this flooded creek so people don't run through the water and wreck out or wash off the road? Who wants to do that? And if I were to physically step forward without saying anything, then my boss would understand, oh, Andy's going to go do that for me. So that's, uh, it goes without saying that the one who steps forward is physically indicating he'll take on the task. And in this case, they're stepping forward or looking out, as the scripture tells us, to let Jehu know, I'm on your side, without having to say a word. Now, verse 33, and he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trod her underfoot. You see why I said this window must have been a pretty high window? For her to get thrown down, Jezebel to be thrown down, and for her blood to splatter on the wall and on the horses meant that that was quite a violent fall. That wouldn't have happened if you, let's say you jumped out of the threshold of the door here. You'd just land a foot on the other side of it. But perhaps if you jumped off the the steeple of a tall building here, that sort of thing would happen. And this proved that these eunuchs were on Jehu's side because they obeyed the command. And he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. There wasn't any arguing, debating, questioning, second-guessing, saying, now, Jehu, you understand this is the queen. So they threw her down. Imagine that. These are eunuchs whose masculine parts had been removed. And therefore, they were, and they did that so that they could supposedly serve the queen or serve a, a female uh, princess or, or somebody, some female who was in a high position without being a threat to engage in some sort of sexual affair. And anyhow, they, they were looked down on by society because they weren't neither man nor woman in the eyes of many. They were still men, but their ability to reproduce and all of that had been taken from them. So those eunuchs who were looked down upon in society were used to throw royalty, the queen of Israel, down to an unceremonious death. They, in their physical incapacity, were more worthy than the powerful and probably physically beautiful Jezebel. In fact, her power and her beauty availed nothing. It didn't do her any good in the face of the Lord's judgment. In Job chapter 4, Job spoke about mortal man not being more just than his maker. And he continued in chapter 4 until verse 4, Job 4, 4, where he said this about mortal man. He said, Doth not their excellency, which is in them, go away? They die even without 
wisdom. Now that word excellency in that passage comes from a word that means excess or, or hanging over. And so when it's applied to Jezebel, it would apply or it would refer to her excess of power and probably excess of physical beauty. She thought if I put makeup on and fix my hair and talk sweet to Jehu, I'll be able to seduce him away from his mission and to whatever it is I want him to do. But yet even this, even this excellency, all of this power and beauty she had was not enough to keep her from dying. God is no respecter of persons. That's what the Bible says. So the eunuchs were on Jehu's side. He said, who's on my side? Who? They stepped forward. They looked down at him. And he said, throw her down. And they threw her down. And she died. And therefore, if the eunuchs were on Jehu's side in this matter, they were on the Lord's side. They did literally what God had promised to do to wicked rulers throughout the Bible. You read about God casting them down and casting them down and throwing them down. And the ones who exalt themselves, he brings them low. The ones who lower themselves or abase themselves, he exalts. It's a principle throughout the Bible. And God not only had done that to wicked rulers, but he promised to continue to do that. And finally, to throw down or to bring down our greatest adversary. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. Revelation 12, 10, the apostle John wrote, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Well, who's the accuser of the brethren? That's Satan. That's the devil. So think of these eunuchs and all the people in Samaria over whom Jezebel had rule. We know how cruel she was, don't we? We read the story of Naboth and how Ahab wanted that vineyard, and Naboth said no. Some people can't handle being told no. He said no, and, I, and Jezebel said, who's the, who's the king around here? And she conspired against Naboth and had him killed so Ahab could have the vineyard. So we know how cruel she is to people, even to someone righteous like Naboth. She was an unrighteous accuser, wasn't she? She set Naboth up. She set up a feast for him, and then she accused him of blasphemy and had him stoned. That was an unrighteous accusation. He was no blasphemer. And yet she said he was. I suppose Jezebel accused those who were not on her side day and night, just like Satan does. In fact, Satan has accused all of us. Did you know that? And some of us, some who are Christians, have struggled tremendously with it. 
Because Satan goes right to the heart of your assurance, your faith in the gospel of Christ. He tells many that their faith isn't strong enough. Perhaps he convinces them that their faith isn't strong enough to keep them from being separated from God for their sins. And then he puts those people on a spiritual treadmill that they can't get off of, and it just wears them down with doubts and fears and doubts and fears. And then they have a good day, and they have two bad days, and a good day and two bad days, and it just doesn't stop. Won't you be glad when his accusations stop for good? I sure will. When he's cast down just like Jezebel was forever. The text says there in verse 33, some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses. So she just went splat, didn't she? That's what happened. And he trod her underfoot. That is, Jehu trod or stomped underfoot, probably with horses, since they're mentioned here in the text, in the verse. So her body, after death, was treated spitefully. And it would be continued, or it would continue to be treated spitefully, just like we're told in a few verses. Look at verse 34. So now he's finished stomping the dead Jezebel. What does he do? And when he was come in, he did eat and drink and said, Go see now this this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. Jehu went in after killing the queen of Israel, and he ate. And last night as I was thinking about that part of the text, I thought about... What David testified in Psalm 23, that God had prepared a table for him in the presence of his enemies. Isn't that something? In a place where you would think fear would rule, where uncertainty would rule, where David is surrounded by his enemies, whether physical or spiritual, we know it was both in many, many cases. And yet would think to write that God had prepared a table for him, a place where he could sit down and eat in the midst of all that. And that's what came to mind when I saw that Jehu went in and had a meal even before he commanded Jezebel's body to be buried. Now the reason he would have her buried was her standing as a king's daughter. It wasn't that Jezebel did anything worthy of having a special burial. She wasn't worthy in and of herself. However, at this point, when he said to these men, go bury her, it's hard to know whether he remembered the rest of the prophecy about her and her body or whether he was simply testing those who would go bury her. Because had they remembered the full prophecy, they would have said, Jehu, You've commanded us to go bury this woman's body, but uh, the prophecy says that the dogs will eat her. There won't be anything left to bury. But they went out and checked anyway. It wasn't just that the dogs would eat her. It's where they would eat her. And from Elijah's prophecy, back in 1 Kings, we read 
that he said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. This wasn't going to happen somewhere else. They weren't going to dig her up after she was buried and eat her wherever that cemetery was. There'd be no body to bury. In fact, just a few parts, as we'll read in just a moment. Verse 35, and they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Now I'll just get real with you here. I've worked a lot of murders in my career. And there are several that are cold cases. And one of the things that makes them very difficult to solve is when the victim's body is not found for years and years. And often when the body is found, it's like this. A skull and maybe a hand or a foot is found. And the the wild animals have done what they do. They don't really care what it is that died. They're going to do what they do, just like these dogs did. But this happened suddenly. This happened immediately after she died and while Jehu was eating a meal. He sent those men out and every part of Jezebel was gone except for the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Interesting. The dogs must have been full, or maybe they got sick from eating all that makeup she put on her face. I don't know why they left the skull, but they did. Verses 36 through 37, I'll read both, and then we'll finish out this chapter. Wherefore they, that's the men who went to bury her, came again and told him, and he said, this is the word of the Lord. Now, what did they come back and tell him? They said something to this effect, Jehu, you commanded us to go bury this woman, for she's a king's daughter. But when we got there, we saw a skull, we saw feet, and we saw palms of her hands. We don't have much to bury. So this was what they conveyed to Jehu. And so in response to that, Jehu said there in verse 36, This is the word of the Lord which he spake by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the portion of Jezreel shall the dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the field in the portion of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, This is Jezebel. So upon being told that her whole body was not found, in fact, most of it was missing, Jehu remembered that prophecy. He remembered the whole prophecy. Jezebel's end was absolute destruction, both physically and spiritually. At least I'm going to go to medical school when I die. I'm in the will body program. Some people shiver when they hear that. Listen, it doesn't matter what you do to a person's body when they die. Does that prevent the resurrection? No. When they get a glorified body, whether they're scattered all over the world or buried in a nice pretty coffin. And maybe save somebody's life. And that same evil, satanic spirit that worked in Jezebel would even be called by that name, by her name in the book of Revelation where Jesus scolded the church of Thyatira. There were seven churches Jesus addressed in the Revelation. 
and one of them was the church at Thyatira. And it's found in chapter 2, verse 20 of Revelation. Chapter 2, verse 20, where Jesus said, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, Jezebel died right here. So you may say, well, well, wait a minute. How does the church of Thyatira, which had not even been established in 2 Kings, how does that have a prophetess named Jezebel? Well, whether that was the name of this prophetess or, as I believe, the, the name Jezebel was used to describe the spirit that was in this, in all who lead God's people away from him, whether that was the name or not is not so much the point. A woman who taught God's people, God's servants, to commit fornication, both physical and spiritual, and to eat sacrifices made to idols, had the spirit of Jezebel. Because that's what she did. That's what we learned about her. That's what a Jezebel is. One who titles herself a prophetess and leads people away from God. That's the simplest way to remember it. Listen to what Jesus said as you continue in that same chapter in Revelation 2. He said this about such a person in verses 21 through 23. He said, and I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Jesus said even to Jezebel, even to those who had the spirit of Jezebel, he gave the opportunity to repent, and they would not. And so he said, I'll kill her children with death. And that's not just her physical children. Children would be the offspring of such a ministry. That's sad, isn't it? There are people who believed what she preached and believed it was true, and they believed a lie and didn't know it or didn't care, one of the two. And they died, and they have the same lot as she does. And the passage says, we're back in verse 37 of 2 Kings 9, And the carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the field in the portion of Jezreel. Think about this. Her remains will fertilize the field that she once took by force. How fitting is that? Wasn't much of her left, but what was left was scattered as dung on that field in the portion of Jezreel. And all it could do is just fertilize, break down, decompose over time. It says, so that they shall not say this is Jezebel. In other words, somebody who sees that rotten skull and hands and palms of the hands and the feet are not going to say, oh, that looks like Jezebel. It'll be impossible to recognize her. 
in all of her vanity, Jezebel tried to set herself apart above the common people. She exalted herself as someone to be revered and feared, but now her remains are no better than dung on the face of a field. And to the high and lofty mockers and scoffers in this world, some of them are in churches, some of them are outside the churches. But this is also their spiritual end. And in the sight of the Lord, they'll be no better than the remains of Jezebel in the dirt. No matter how excellently they portray themselves. Now let's go to chapter 10 and verse 1. And Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote letters and sent to Samaria unto the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders... And to them that brought up Ahab's children, saying, and we'll read what is said in a moment. Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Now this tells us that Jehu has a lot of work left to accomplish, doesn't he? Because he was to cut off the house of Ahab. And the house of Ahab means all who were born from Ahab's house, from from his loins. He's got a lot of work to do to accomplish what God sent him to do. It's not enough to just cut off Ahab and Jezebel themselves. But all which sprang forth from them have to be cut off as well. And as we've studied Jehu's mission and watched him work, we've seen a theme of complete destruction of his enemies. In fact, if you remember, I believe it was last week, we studied how he drew his bow in full strength. And we studied what that full strength meant. He didn't draw it back a little and let the arrow cut between the shoulder blades and fall to the chariot. No, it went through the heart of Joram. He drew it in full strength before he sent that arrow of judgment through Joram's heart. And now that full-strength judgment will be applied numerically as well to the 70 sons of Ahab, not 69 of them, all 70. And notice there in verse 1, the three types of people to whom Jehu sent these letters. One was the rulers of Jezreel, or the princes, The guys who are in charge of the daily affairs and governmental operations and all of that. Two, to the elders. And that literally means the old men or the aged men. And then three, to them that brought up Ahab's children. And that Hebrew word that we translate as brought up means to support, even to believe or to establish. So they were very close to these sons. These letters were sent by Jehu to people who were in positions of authority in Jezreel. The rulers governed the various activities, governmental activities in Jezreel. The elders were supposed to be the bastions, the well houses of knowledge and wisdom, of godly knowledge and wisdom, but they weren't. And morality, they were supposed to be examples to all. Both Old and New Testament, God admonishes the aged and the elders to be 
examples to the younger people. Paul specifically addresses that in the church. And those who brought up Ahab's sons were their supporters and their educators. Now let's look at verses 2 through 3. The body of this letter from Jehu to these men is contained in these two verses. Now as soon as this letter cometh to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, a fenced city also, and armor, look even out the best and meetest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. So he told them, you all have all these chariots, horses, you have a fenced city, you've got armor. I want you to pick out one of those 70 sons of Ahab and put him on the throne. Go ahead. Well, by the words he used in this letter, very short letter, the recipients of the letter must have had some idea that Jehu was coming to wipe out the sons of Ahab. And what he uses here is a psychological tactic that is often very successful in intimidating the opponent. Example, and I'm sure some of you guys did this when you were in grade school, but if you didn't, we'll just listen to my sad story. In grade school, out on the playground, that's where you got tough. And we got nicked up. We didn't run cry to the teacher. That was the worst thing you could do. You better have a bone sticking out or an artery cut before you go tell the teacher, I got pushed down, I got hit, I got this or that. Well, that's the way it was, and it didn't hurt us any. But we had this game we played, and we'd trade punches to the arm. And so one boy would tell the other one, all right, give me your best shot right here. And after that, it's my turn. Well, we figured out pretty quickly who were the good punchers and who weren't. And if a good puncher came up to you and said, hey, I'm going to let you hit me as hard as you can and then it's my turn. You might say, oh, I'm not doing that. But we did anyway because we were boys. And that caused the other boy to think twice. Because if his punch wasn't good enough, then when it was the other boy's turn, the first boy was fixing to get hit and probably wouldn't be able to lift his arm up the rest of the day. I had that happen. I made the mistake of saying yes a couple times. I learned my lesson. And Jehu was inviting these rulers, these elders, and these men who brought up Ahab's children their sons, to get everything and everyone ready so they could hit Jehu with their best shot. I'm giving you notice. You have all of these things going for you, and I'm giving you notice. Give me your best shot. You can even make your own king. Pick the best of all the 70 sons and make him your king and give me your best shot. You know, Jehu could have done a surprise attack, couldn't he? He could have waited till the sun set and everybody's guard was down and snuck into the city or set it on fire, but he didn't do that. Now, why would he be so confident in his success 
that he chose to make such an offer, it's because he knew God was faithful. God was faithful. It didn't matter what the circumstance was. If God said, you're going to cut off the house of Ahab, then that was going to happen. You know, when Satan's crowd imprisons preachers of the gospel throughout the world, we can be like Jehu. They can give us their best shot. But God is still going to save people through the preaching of his word. Regardless of how hard Satan hits us. They can try to shut our churches down and remove our tax write-offs for tithing, filter our posts on social media and all the things they do. They can line up their chariots and their great men and give us their best shot, but we're not to be afraid because God's faithful and that's what matters. Jehu wasn't afraid of anything that the enemy was going to do. And speaking of the, the tax write-offs for tithing, it's been several years ago that I wondered if one day the United States Congress and whoever the president was would remove that write-off for charitable giving, particularly when done to a church. And... I guess it was about two years ago I noticed that when I would put my, the total of my tithes and offerings in my workbook, in my Intuit workbook that I used, TurboTax, whereas before it would show a pretty good credit. I got a pretty good write-off for it. But now the standard deduction, if you've done your taxes, you know what I'm talking about. The standard deduction is much higher and it is always higher than whatever write-off I could get from itemizing my charitable giving, which is fine with me. But I wonder, and God knows this, and so do the people who do it, I wonder how many people who've been tithing all these years in church have done so for a financial gain and who now say, well, I don't get any tax benefit from it. Why continue to do it? I get the standard deduction anyway. Let me tell you, if anybody's done that or if they're listening or if they hear this later on, shame on you. That's not why we tithe. That's not why we give. We do it even if we get penalized for it. We do it because that's what God's word tells us to do. And if we don't, what are we doing? We're robbing God. Very clear. Okay. So I don't care what the Internal Revenue Service says, oh, I'd like to have some of my hard-earned money back. But if I don't get it, God's faithful. He's in control. And that money's not going to mean anything. It's going to mean even less than it does now. I better not get off on my speech about fiat currency. So how do you think David was able to go against Goliath? in the Philistines when he was a young lad with no military skills. He could watch sheep. He was good at that. He could bring a report back from the battlefront and tell his dad what was going on. Listen to 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 45. 1 Samuel 17 and verse 45. Then said David to the Philistine, that's to Goliath, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, 
the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. Goliath had all his armor, just like Jezreel. His sword, his helmet, his size, his strength, his military experience and might. But David went in the strength of the Lord, and who prevailed? David. We know that story, don't we? So that's where Jehu's coming from. He said, you can, you can put your chariots and your armor on and put a king on there. It doesn't matter. Pick the best one. You've got a fenced city. Now let's see what the response of these men of Jezreel was in verse 4. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, two kings stood not before him. How then shall we stand? It said these men were exceedingly afraid. Now this was a little short letter. You could have put this on an old postcard. You don't see those get mailed out too much anymore. At least I don't get any. Maybe people don't like me. I'm like Charlie Brown. Everybody gets a Christmas card but me. But I come by it honestly because I don't send them out either. But this little letter caused them to be exceedingly afraid. And let me tell you, this fear was a healthy fear. This, it's okay for them to be exceedingly afraid right here. In the face of the sure judgment of the Lord, who would not be afraid? Now, there are those today who say, well, I'm not afraid. Oh, they will be. To his disciples, Jesus repeatedly said, be not afraid. In the Old Testament, God often told his people, his people, to fear not, meaning don't be afraid of your enemies. Why would these men in Jezreel be afraid? See, if we're on God's side, we don't have anything to fear in that respect, do we? But the fear we have for God, you say, well, I'm a God-fearing person. Well, that's good. That kind of fear is a reverence. It's a respect for God. We fear God because we love him. We don't cower in the corner. We obey him because we love him. But the wicked should be afraid of his judgment. They should be very afraid as we read here. Just like these chief men in Jezreel were afraid of Jehu, they should be. In Proverbs chapter 1, we've been studying on Wednesday nights. If you're missing it, you're missing out. But in Proverbs 1, we learned a little bit about those who have neither reverence nor terror of the Lord. They don't respect God. They don't, they're not terrified of God. And... They're called simple ones. They're called those who don't love knowledge. And in verse 22, Proverbs 1, 22, it says, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. And then when you move further down in Proverbs 1, down to verses 27 through 29, Speaking of those who hate knowledge, who are simple, who love simplicity, who uh, are scorners, Solomon wrote, When your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. 
See, there's a time to choose the fear of the Lord, isn't there? And he said, and this is obviously that time when it's too late, that time when God pours out his wrath upon the earth, that time when unsaved people go before the white throne judgment there in the book of Revelation chapter 20 and say, I'm afraid now, I'm afraid, Lord, save me. It's too late. You did not choose the fear of the Lord. So the point is that even those who walk around today telling you, I'm not afraid of God, I got, there's no God, I got this under control. It's not a matter of if their fear will come as desolation, it's when it will. Solomon said, when your fear cometh as desolation, it's a guarantee that it's going to happen. So although these simple ones and scorners show no fear of the Lord, they will fear one day, but their fear won't profit them any because they did not choose the fear of the Lord before. And this is the picture of the life of a stiff-necked, a hard-hearted person. It's not your fault that people won't trust the Lord for salvation. We are instruments. We are witnesses. And Jesus told us what to do when they reject that gospel witness. He said, shake the dust off your feet and go to the next house. Don't stand there. I mean, you can pray for those people, but there are others who also need to hear the gospel. And when somebody mocks you and ridicules you and says, I can't believe you believe all of that. That's a fairy tale. That's this or that. And there is no indication that they're open to listening to the truth. You shake the dust off your feet and you go to the next house because there's somebody who's going to hear that truth. And we don't know who that will be. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul spoke of these unrighteous by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. When we preach the gospel to guilty sinners and they go away in unbelief, it's because they have no fear of God before their eyes. Notice their eyes before their eyes. They see with their physical eyes. They see by what they hear and visualize and what they've experienced in the past. They don't see it by faith, do we? You see, that's how we're saved. It's by faith in what Jesus did, not by saying, well, I was there when it happened physically. I saw it. There were a lot of people who saw it, and many of them walked away in unbelief. They should be exceedingly afraid of the judgment of the Lord. Just as these Jezreelites were exceedingly afraid of the judgment of Jehu, even before he came. And for the wicked in the day of judgment, it's going to be too late. Their fear will not let them find the Lord, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord while they were living. And these Jezreelites at least believed by faith, somewhat, that Jehu was going to be successful in destroying them if they stood in his way. Now, that's what a prideful sinner needs to hear. Not everybody needs to be motivated by fear per se. Some are already afraid of the judgment of God. They're so afraid, they think they can't be saved. And what they need to know about is the love of God that that Jesus won't cast anyone out who comes to him. But the ones who say, I don't need God. 
I got this. They need to understand the fear of the Lord. And these Jezreelites did so. In 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, as we're beginning to close, the Apostle Paul wrote, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, that word terror is fear, 41 times in the New Testament. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Paul told us in that church that his knowledge of the terror of the Lord is what motivated him to persuade men, both concerning belief in the gospel and also being obedient in the Christian walk. Jehu knew the terror of the Lord because he'd already executed it upon King Joram, Ahaziah, and now Jezebel. And knowing the terror of the Lord, he used these letters to persuade the men of Jezreel. These men already knew Jehu had successfully defeated two kings. And having knowledge that Jehu had been successful in destroying evil was important in convincing these men to believe he would do so again. Next week we'll pick up with the rest of verse 4. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all who are in attendance today. Thank you for the word of God, which is our bread, our staff of life. And I pray, Father, you would impart the truth that's been taught today and that we would understand it, meditate upon it, and live it out by faith as your grace allows. We pray during the next hour that you would anoint the singing, the praying, and the preaching of your word. Give our pastor a clear mind and liberty to speak and us ears to hear. Rebuke the devourer that he would not take away the message from our heart as though it were sown on stony ground. And we pray this in Jesus' name.